Well, I'm recording a new intro to this now because I was not expecting to record. I thought we had enough uh, and the Warriors would just close things out as expected. Okachere, Clippers, light up Golden State. They led basically throughout the entire game after the first quarter, despite Golden State being on fire from three in the first quarter. The Clippers outscored them 34 to 22 in the second and then held on, even trailing by one late. And then Lou Williams went on a personal 9-2 run. He absolutely barbecued everyone who is trying to guard him kevin durant uh, most often in isolation and the clippers get another improbable oracle arena win they've won two of the three games at oracle and we have a game six on friday night yeah i want to start this out by praising the clippers you brought up lou williams another important player in this game for them was patrick beverly beverly in the first quarter made three three pointers and grabbed six rebounds including two offensive rebounds i thought that was really big for them in a first quarter which had overwhelming offense i mean neither one of these teams really stopped the other one at all some of that was shot making and and things going in some of it was pretty awful defense i thought that in particular the warriors just were kind of letting some of their bad habits take over but i want to give first i want to give credit to the clippers because those two guys and montres harrell also you know a lot of other guys like jamichael green had some really nice moments and Danilo gallinari made his way back from basically the dead in this series to lead the clippers starters in scoring with 26 still less than Lou Williams 33 yeah 42 minutes for Gallo he was outstanding in the first three or I'm sorry three for 11 and I thought another huge thing which we talked about after game four which ended up not mattering was the Clippers starting lineup with Jermichael Green at center he had the matchup on KD and KD was unstoppable throughout most of the game with 45 points but struggled a little bit more late as the especially they got into a little bit of desperation mode and were only five out of 23 from three in the second half on a lot of wide open looks themselves for the worst but the Clippers got off to great starts to both the first and the third and then when you throw in the fact that they really had the advantage at that start of the second quarter with Lou and Trez both on the floor and the Warriors really it's just Clay Thompson and that's it and among their star players now you have these opportunities for the Clippers if they can just hang on the rest of the way and the Warriors have their four all-stars on the floor they should dominate but because Bogut doesn't really have anyone to guard he's got to guard a three-point shooter which he's just not really capable of doing i mean he's a 34 year old center who was out of the nba for a reason he's given them great play but asking him to guard a three-point shooter is just not part of his skill set they should have been starting looney this whole time they didn't uh because steve kerr does not make an adjustment to his starting lineup until they lose and they really got hurt in those minutes particularly at the start of the third and they were playing from behind nearly the entire game what makes kerr's reluctance to start looney even harder to defend is he doesn't it, finish yeah it's it's yeah, so ridiculous it, like because, you tweeted about this like yeah, it's, you, it's ridiculous you're it's not like changing it, it's actually even more he egregious played 22 than that minutes because He's plus 15 by because the way. draymond green is on the floor at the end of the first and third quarters anyway so if you wanted to start looney and then and then you know you don't want to overuse him then you could just pull him out whenever you want to and maybe you don't go to Draymond at center every time but you can use spot minutes with with Bogut or or Jordan Bell or somebody else like that but Looney can expand his role easily and 
it, it wouldn't do, it wouldn't really hurt anything, you know, and I mean, offensively, Looney has some limitations. I mean, Harrell swatted the, the ever-loving crap out of one of his tr- attempted finishes in this game, but works on the defensive glass so much more, so much more mobile, and that makes a huge difference. And a yeah, part of this- should ser- be able to stop that Clippers starting yeah. unit without Trez or Lou in the game. You just switch those guys. They don't really have anyone right. who and, scares you in an ISO too much. And that gets into a criticism that I've had of, of the Warriors defense. And I, I'm not sure if this is players or scheme. It's it's not something that I've ever been clear on, which is related to the idea of threat assessment that the Warriors against teams that aren't as dynamic, individually Lou Williams being a noted exception here on the Clippers, they overhelp off of guys that can't really do it without that help. So for example, like leaving Landry Shamit in the corner to contest something at the basket, you're giving up a really good look. If you're on Shamit, he's not going to do nearly as much. Patrick Beverly, most of his baskets were catch and shoot threes. Same idea, you know, either they were, you know, Steph Curry straying off of Patrick Beverly to not particularly help anything else. And then he cuts back. He's a little bit late on the closeout and Beverly has, has a clean look. He can make those type of shots. Not really a problem for him. So he has a big night. Those sorts of decisions, whether it's from a coaching perspective, perspective or from a player's perspective are a big problem and that ties in with the Houston series that has a whole bunch of players that have the same issue that if you make them put it on the floor if you just don't leave them in the first place they those players are not going to be what kills you yeah and I thought it was really the first quarter that lost the Warriors this game 41 point quarter I think they were 8 of 10 from 3 at one point just absolutely on fire they should have been up 15 after that quarter it was a low possession quarter too and instead I mean throughout the first half Clippers ended the half with like a 150 offensive rating and Lou Williams was just he's really good and he really kills the Warriors too and they're influencing him right and he is now able to beat that cover he's able to duck underneath guys they're terrified to get their bodies onto him he's really quick and is actually something that his teammate Shea Gilgis Alexander could learn from that a lot of times skinny guys will try and drive and they just get bumped off their line but when you do that with Lou he's able to accentuate the contact and he draws the foul so you can't get your body on him at all and use your strength and he's just really quick and then as a shot maker you can't let him go left because he'll just he doesn't need to pull up he just continues drifting and shoots the ball and he's just absolutely deadly on those shots even if it's a three-pointer so he is very hard to deal with I thought the only warrior that had any success with him was Thompson and then they took Thompson off of him and put Iguodala on him and Iguodala has gotten pretty roasted then when they got the switch uh, Lou absolutely barbecued KD hit a huge four-point play on him right after KD had dunked to give the Warriors a lead and it felt like oh now they're gonna take care of business and then he got to the foul line he scored over KD in an iso on the right side of the floor with a beautiful pump fake and that 9-2 run was just an incredible shot making they had no answers for Harrell either I mean that deadly pick and roll combination when Bogut was on the floor they start the fourth quarter they tried to blitz it twice there was no help behind there they give up two buckets then they switch it up again then they take Bogut out for Looney but he only played 22 minutes Kerr also in this game was not aggressive enough with the minutes of his guys 38 minutes for 30 for curry 37 for clay he did bring back durant a little earlier because he was on fire to help out that start of the second and start of the fourth quarter unit um and, and then down the end the warriors just missed three threes all of which were pretty decent looks and had two ugly turnovers and this is twice now that they've been totally outplayed down the stretch of a close game that vaunted death lineup by the clippers yeah i mean the clippers did they executed down the stretch they they competed got some solid minutes from a lot of different guys and and i've mentioned this before in the series 
series, and he wasn't in the closing lineup, but I, I've liked the job that Garrett Temple has done. Yeah. And Temple it kind of is a victim of circumstance in that the players who are ahead of him in the rotation have largely played well. You know, Lou Williams has been a star in the series. Beverly has been really good. Shamit does Shamit things pretty well. And then Shea, Shea has been, it, it's been it on the game. But overall, like those guys are ahead of him in the pecking order. It's not a surprise that Temple's doing that, but I've liked the defense he played. There was one play at the end of, I believe it was the third quarter where I thought he did a really nice job on Steph Curry. And it goes to show the depth that's on this Clippers team. I mean, remember they acquired Temple and Jermichael Green, who is now starting, played 27 minutes in this game. They acquired those guys for Avery Bradley, who played better in Memphis to be sure, but has a partial guarantee for next season and had played awfully as a member of the Clippers. And so really to see those guys step up and and be a part of the series is, is impressive. Yeah, Green... I've liked to see him get a chance to be more aggressive from three. This whole Clippers team has been more aggressive from three. And a set that was pointed out to me is the Clippers are only shooting 32% on wide open threes in this series. They've missed a lot of pretty darn good looks at times. I mean, they, they really, you know, the Warriors have held them down to some degree in the three games that the Warriors won they've been yeah around a point per possession for a lot of those games but the Clippers have have missed a fair number of open shots and they are just a really explosive offense especially against this Warriors team for whatever reason another thing that killed Golden State they eventually ended up out offensive rebounding the Clippers with their small group at the end but 50% offensive rebounds in the first quarter for the Clippers also helped them stay in it they got up 15 three-point attempts in the first quarter again not very good defense it hit six of them another big change for golden state was usually when they lose they turn the ball over a ton and that wasn't the case i mean you usually just cannot stay with them if they don't turn the ball over because they just shoot it so well and that wasn't the case tonight they went seven out of their last 29 from three after that eight to ten start steph curry only got up five three-point attempts but was four or five and they just could not stop la i mean this is really just a devastating offensive performance for the clippers they had a 136 offensive rating in this game 67 percent true shooting they're Six, just 65 percent from two 24 of 26 from the free throw line and that's 65 percent for two because remember in the last game golden state actually let them get a ton of rim attempts and they shot below 50 percent and draymond green had a monster game in game four didn't do that in game five at all i thought kd was really flat to start the game and that carried over to the end when he couldn't get a stop in an iso but he he had one big block but other than that a lot of plays were just like closed out short to beverly who's not really a dangerous driver and just let him shoot a three over him you know it was not i think so much of the of this warriors team gets their cue from kd it seems like as far as whether they're going to be intense or not so now we go into game six and this is not the way golden state wanted to go in here because houston who we thought was the more likely team to lose if anyone was going to they take care of utah utah couldn't score again game six we have a very quick turnaround they have to fly back from la game one of the next series assuming that the Warriors even win by the way where they are I saw that they are 14 and a half point favorites so hopefully that's actually right I just saw a tweet about it on the road at game six I mean that's got to be like one of the bigger lines you'll ever see for a favorite on the road uh I mean I think teams just uh, people just assume that everyone's gonna be like oh well the Warriors are gonna try playing again after you know same thing that happened after game two they had that blowout winning game three but 
you know this is a scary clippers team they have guys who can get really hot that you just can't deal with and so they really need to make sure that they hold down the other guys and that when lou and trez are out of the game that they really stop this team and get out to a nice lead to start the game so still obviously the warriors remain massive favorites in the series but now they're going to be going into it on a big rest disadvantage against houston anything else you would try uh for either team as far as adjustments going into game six not starting bogut is is a pretty clear one there and kerr has been trying you know these different concepts of the beginning of the second and fourth quarters and they're running into a big problem against the clippers there because the clippers have two of their best players at minimum on the floor during those moments it's going to be a problem against the rockets too assuming that series happens because the rockets often have real have good players on the floor then as well and so can they try to get away with that and something that tim kawakami brought up during the game was if your bet is okay we need to tread water maybe we even lose some ground there you need to be just absolutely dominating in the rest of the minutes if your idea is steph kd and draymond are basically going to play a ton of minutes together in the first and third well then you need to be racking up these leads in those minutes because you're going to be giving up ground and in that second unit time and iguodala played 27 minutes maybe he needs to play more looney i think needs to play more we talked about that alfonso mckinney and livingston i mean those guys were negative nine and negative ten yeah i mean it's tough to have both of those guys on the floor and bogut and iguodala and, and you just got clay thompson and that's it really you know they did a nice job at the start of the second quarter trying to get clay some shots i also think that they have to do more to get curry going and certainly the clippers have changed up their coverage now they've gone to just really switching everything and then if lou williams man happens to get the ball lou's job is to try and deny and then if his man gets the ball and that man is either clay steph or kd then they'll just double team um to just try and get him into rotation and i mean the, the clippers aren't going to stop the warriors like that's not going to happen but they just need to slow him down just enough and especially at the end of game but you know it really comes down to the defensive end for the Warriors. i think they got to go clay on lou williams when he's in us the other reason for that too to me is even if you want to say iguodala do a slightly better job on lou which i don't think that he can i mean maybe the thing is like well iguodala was teammates with them in philadelphia where they're both vastly different players now than they used to be but even if that's the thought iguodala is so superior to clay as a help defender that you would rather have him off the ball and clay on the ball so that iguodala can rotate and make plays defensively be freed up to do that instead of having to guard Lou but you know certainly the Warriors are switching everything Clippers also did a really nice job of getting Lou started by running a 1-4-5 pick and roll when it was Draymond and Looney in the game and getting Draymond onto Lou and then setting another screen and they didn't really want to switch Looney onto Lou Williams it seemed like and Draymond getting over a screen you know is, is a little difficult for him and you know, he's not quite the guy that he used to be a few years ago with that so uh, that was a, another a nice wrinkle that the Clippers had uh for them really like the starting group and hope that Kerr doesn't uh, adjust basically you know I'm not sure what else there is for them I mean Gallo's playing 42 minutes they would like to play Jamichael Green more he was plus 11 in this game he fouled out I think he's fouled out of like two of the last three games or something like that and he's got an impossible job on KD but he does when it, he's straight up on KD I think he does a decent job on him I also think the Warriors need to go to KD at the end of the game you know I mean he was just completely unstoppable with this small group if he can get a shoulder by the guy he's just going to go in and dunk the the clippers have absolutely no help at the rim on someone like him and they did not do a good job of getting him the ball in the last three minutes of the game if it does get that close so oh no jerome robinson for the clippers i don't know why he's out there i mean shamit did play 37 minutes so maybe but maybe they feel like they just they need somebody there and he that he's a better option than wilson chandler he also sprained his ankle it looked like so he may not even 
be able to go necessarily so maybe they'll try and steal some minutes with Chandler maybe you just can extend Garrett Temple a little bit more as well though those guys were generally playing together at the start of the second and fourth quarter so that'd require a little bit of a rejigger of the rotation uh anything you want to say quickly about this Houston Utah game as the Rockets close it out 193 against the Jazz well I mean it was a rough offensive performance for the Jazz some of that was Houston created I I think the Rockets have generally played very good defense in this series the I mean that's something we saw over the second half of the year really after that rough start but at the same point their numbers look rosier because Utah just missed a ton of shots and I mean nine of 38 from downtown again it's just pathetic yeah I mean it was a pretty remarkable part of the series and the the idea of them having I, I I didn't see the final series numbers but you know high shot quality really in really ineffective offense because they were missing all these shots I mean yeah it's an extreme but the Ricky Rubio one at the end of the game was just just an absolute crusher could have could have kept them in I think it might have even been able to give give Utah the lead and Mitchell makes the right play I mean from a basketball perspective kicks it out to the open guy in the corner Rubio they basically could see the shot and he misses everything yeah and then the Jazz also they (laughs) committed I was going apeshit in the media room like people were staring at me as we're watching this because they committed three straight frustration fouls in the backcourt to give up free throws in the last two minutes of the game when like it wasn't like they're intentionally fouling and they're lucky that tucker missed a couple of free throws the first time around and then they do it two possessions in a row again like just they turn it over they yeah and the last one was to harden you know yeah. th- this isn't a it tactical was... thing of oh man they're gonna get a better shot than this no james harden taking two free throws he's yeah, gonna make they... those two free throws and teams just have this terrible habit of doing that all the time but this was like i've never seen three in a row like this of like okay we're we have an important shot here with a minute 15 remaining or 55 seconds remaining and we miss it and now we just go ape shit trying to get the ball on the rebound and we just foul or like we foul semi-intentionally we're just thinking like there's just oh man this is a really high leverage shot it's really important oh it didn't go in and you just we got a foul but you just have no you know okay yeah it's a really important shot and if you miss a really important shot with you know less than 26 seconds remaining in the game yeah you do have to foul but hey guess what there wasn't less than 26 seconds remaining in the game um also houston yeah. had a 102 offensive rating in this game so it's yeah. not like oh man they're scoring on us every time we might as well just get as many shots up as we can that's the way to make a comeback here now i do think that everyone who was shitting on quinn snyder and rudy gobert and the defensive strategy well maybe the shitting on rudy gobert is right because i didn't think he had a good first couple of games and i also thought that the guys guarding the ball handler didn't have a, a good first couple of games but the people who are shitting on the defensive strategy the jazz just didn't execute it well enough and you saw that when it did start to get executed well just as in last year's playoffs actually i thought the the defense w- was good enough to win for them in last year's playoffs and after the first two games it was here i mean harden had another really rough game he started 0 for 8 and ended up with 26 points uh, on 28 shooting possessions only six assists five turnovers and three of 12 from three only took five free throw attempts i mean that's great defense uh, on this team and they held in only 37 three-point attempts that's actually pretty good uh, considering the number of threes that houston gets up they usually take more than 50 percent of their shots as threes they usually get to the foul line a, a lot more than they did i mean and these last three games i mean they really held them around a point per possession or even less but they're just their own awful scoring donovan mitchell concluding a nightmare series with 12 points on four of 22 shooting and only five free throw attempts 0 for nine for three he also had one assist and the great passing that he showed at times in the utah portion of the series wasn't there now it didn't help that they went nine out of 38 from three but uh you take out his 0 for nine and they actually 
actually you know it wasn't a just terrible performance uh i mean i think their best three-point shooting night of the series was 31 percent in game four and they won that game uh royce o'neill was awesome had some awesome finishes in the lane actually hit two out of four from three himself he uh led the jazz in scoring with 18 points which is good for him but bad for the jazz uh so i I mean they got their shit together after the first two games and maybe if they could have won game three which uh, many would say they probably should have this would have been a a six gamer or seven gamer i think did we both pick it in seven i think we did right i picked it in six damn it (laughs) but well and one other guy i want to mention briefly i thought clint capella played very well overall and yeah coming off that respiratory infection that we didn't really find out about until after the the utah games where he really struggled and and they went with tucker at center more in game four so yeah he he was much better you're right yeah and so now houston gets some days off and they will be they will be ready for the next series whenever it starts that will either be sunday afternoon at oracle or it will be tuesday evening at oracle depending on what happens in game six in staples center yeah assuming oracle arena doesn't burn down between now and then because that's it's basically the only other disaster that could happen <laughs> for this warriors team which has been so bad well, at home they, they just they just need to petition the league to give up home court for the next two series yeah i'm sure uh, joe lake will be very interested in that um also eric gordon was outstanding defensively against mitchell and mitchell uh, if they didn't get a switch and put someone like harden onto mitchell like mitchell just had no chance against gordon he really locked him down gordon has long arms pretty quick feet strong and he gave mitchell a, a lot of problems and it's definitely you know mitchell had an awesome second half of the year against some pretty crappy competition in the jazz schedule and this is really going to be a learning experience for him he did have that awesome fourth quarter in game four but other than that was completely bottled up in this series and yeah he has a difficult task against a team that switches this much and when no one else is hitting threes they can really load up on him all all that stuff but you know i wouldn't say that a team like portland or something has that much more offensive talent outside of mitchell than the jazz do i mean i guess you've got cj the jazz don't really have anyone like that but dame spends a lot of his time without cj out there too so uh, and you see what dame was able to do in this series he obviously had some bad series too and that's uh, where mitchell is at right now Uh, and so it's going to be back to the drawing board for him uh, to try and continue to get better this offseason but certainly his star takes a little bit of a hit based on uh, his inability to perform against this Rockets team which you know who knows maybe this Rockets team is going to win the championship uh, and uh, this loss won't look as bad as it feels right now for you yeah and we're not going to do the jazz offseason preview right now but they have some big decisions to make and while you don't want to overreact to losing to the Rockets twice I mean they're they're really good team and they're you know finishing 53 and 29 i think that understates how how strong of a team they are right now sure but if utah i've talked many times about the definition of success question and dennis Lindsay ownership are going to have to do that because it probably would take a you know a step back in terms of your expected value like there's a reasonable uh, option of that because it's not like they're going to get i don't think Kawhi leonard or katie or somebody like that but that i the idea of whether that is better because it gives you a chance of maybe getting past these great teams or do you accept that you can be a, a wonderful regular season group be one of the best defensive teams in the league and put it together enough offensively and probably not and there will be friction there because the players they choose are going to be in, in kind of in one camp or the other based on what i think is going to be available and so i'm i'm really excited to see which way they go yeah and obviously favors and rubio are the main pivot points there 
All right, we got a little bit of news that has piled up here. Plenty on the dysfunctional franchise front. Let us start in Phoenix, where Igor Kokoshkov hired amid much pageantry about this time last season. A hire that we really liked was going to install some of the stuff from Quinn Snyder in Utah, get them to move the ball a little bit more. Dumped unceremoniously. Before we talk about who they may be trying to hire, what do you think of this firing and the Kokoshkov era overall? I want to push back a little bit further to about a year before what Kokoshkov was hired. And that was Ryan McDonough in a decision that we criticized at the time. He received a contract extension from the Suns July 19th, 2017. So that was, you know, after the main part of their offseason already, the draft and all that fun stuff comes back. The Suns have, you know, they, they had some injuries in the 17-18 season. That was, for those who remember, the Eric Bledsoe craziness was that year as well. And the 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 barbershop thing and all that, the, uh, the sitting him had already happened. And after that season, you know, they McDonough has the you're looking at an opening. They had fired they had fired Earl Watson. They were looking for their next coach. And Robert Sarver, not only had he given McDonough an extension, but he still had them on the team. McDonough runs that entire offseason for the Phoenix Suns, including drafting DeAndre Aiden, trading up for Mikhail Bridges, Trevor Reza, all of those things, and hiring a head coach, which is one of the most important things a general manager does. Then he gets fired before the team he built even plays a game. And and so then when you do that, well, then the new decision maker, in this case, James Jones, is going to want to hire their own coach. So there was a level of kind of fatalism with this from the start. Yeah. And Jones, though, commented on the firing in a way that didn't make a ton of sense to me. He said, basically, I remember Kokoshkov was hired, you know, in May, I think it was last year, well before the draft. And, and I think even potentially before the lottery. And Jones said, well, you know, we hired him to coach this veteran team and they made the trade to get Ryan Anderson. They signed Trevor Ariza and used all of their cap space to do that. Okay, maybe you get those guys, but you still, you drafted a number, a rookie center, number one overall. Your other best guy is Devin Booker, and you don't have a point guard on the team. And this Suns team, which I think very easily could have been anticipated, ended up playing so many rookies, so many minutes. And so that doesn't really, yeah, okay, they got Anderson and Ariza, but everyone else was really, Josh Jackson was in the rotation, Bridges. I mean, there's even TJ Warren is still a pretty young player so i don't really buy that excuse for moving on from him. i mean it's just a nice thing to say and james jones probably just wants his own guy i mean i think that's uh, that's really what it is and for whatever reason he and kakashkov it didn't seem to work for them and you know kakashkov i'm not saying he covered himself in glory but i i thought he also had pretty much a, a an impossible job this season and they only gave him one year as well i mean this isn't like yeah fred hoiberg also had a, an impossible job but he, we had three years of him coaching already to at least show that he wasn't a brilliant coach and i thought you know he helped deandre eaton take some steps forward defensively still has a long way to go devin booker easily had the best season of his career despite maybe the fewest threats that he's ever had alongside him if you look at how bad they were when he sat uh this could also be related to to jeff bauer coming in uh, as the number two guy under jones but it seems like jones has consolidated power but again i mean you go back to all just the crazy changes of direction that this franchise has had uh it's pretty remarkable that that they moved down for him i mean at least uh sarver is willing to pay you know that that's uh a slight
slight positive i suppose and the suns also purged the rest of kakashkov's staff and uh have made some changes in their analytics department as well they, they moved on from their director of analytics so big time changes being made here we'll see who they end up hiring it, it seems like at least there's a mandate to fill things out and spend some money here yeah but just like the trevor reza signing spending money doesn't necessarily mean spending money money wisely it is a, a step up in many ways from sarver because he's been a notorious spendthrift in in certain areas that i think have been detrimental to the team but isn't a spendthrift someone who actually like spends a lot uh profligately but to no purpose like it's one of those words that oh sounds, you're like, right you're right it's somebody you're it right like. yeah. yep that that's exactly right ethan ethan will yell at me whenever he listens to this <laughs> so that'll be fun I'm looking forward to that but yeah i mean so you have i mean at least now they're doing things in the right order i think that that's a, a good step here you know figure out the other than basically hiring a, a g having a gm and then trying to say you have a senior advisor to that gm but still deferring all that sort of stuff other than that i mean gm hires the coach and then can figure out whatever they want in terms of analytical support staff all, all of those sorts of things so that that is a positive now giving that authority to james jones i have, I have questions with that and yeah, now, worth noting by the way though I, I had forgotten this and it was pointed out to me uh, in a conversation i was having that james jones you know I, I criticized him for not knowing the cba he was at least in a leadership position with the players association yeah like, during during the lockout so he does have some exposure to the cba in that regard. so now we um, get to see who the who the suns hire i mean there are some options on the table we've already heard monty williams name around there and this is not a spectacular coaching free agent offseason at, at this point but i mean if they can get somebody yeah. who aligns who, who's your who's your top candidate on the market right now i mean i i don't think anyone who with previous head coaching experience really blows me out of the water i would agree with that i mean i had talked previously about alvin gentry as being an option for the lakers but then alvin gentry is going to be the coach of the pelicans next year so he's not on the market i don't have anybody that i particularly love either i mean and even i mean it's funny one of the people who has experience that i like is kakashkov obviously he's not going to get the job but yeah i I, there isn't anybody that i'm sitting there and the hard thing for assistant coaches is a lot of it is word of mouth you know what gets reported all of that so like there was a lot of buzz around let's say kenny atkinson when he got the nets job but i didn't know much about what he was going to bring to the table yeah and kakashkov was very highly regarded and despite what we said is an impossible situation he did not succeed in phoenix yeah i mean ty Lu, i mean has won a championship he's probably got to be at the top of that list but he's not being talked about in phoenix it does kind of seem to me with the timing of this move that williams is the front runner here that's what's been reported but then you'll note that about 24 hours later there's oh yeah williams you know they're really interested in him but there's some other guys that are going to interview nate tibbets and david vanterpool from portland as well and so maybe that means they thought oh hey like monty williams might be about to get hired by the lakers that's what report we got to move on from kakashkov right now so we can get a chance with monty and then maybe it kind of became clear that oh maybe we're not guaranteed to get monty and because it, it sounded to me at first like okay what's happening here is lou's probably just gonna end up with the lakers job and then the suns will it's kind of arranged already that williams will just go to phoenix but it's not training that way right now uh but we'll see where, where they end up going now obviously i mean this is once again a young team that needs player development i'm also potentially if i'm interested in the sun's job and I, i'm a candidate who like williams seems to have at least some modicum of leverage here maybe i wait and see what happens in the lottery see if you get number one or number two for the suns speaking of Ty Lu, he's got competition in la danny yeah dave mcmenamin reporting that jason kidd interviewed with rob palenka and kurt rambis for the lakers head coaching vacancy and 
the fact that Jason, I mean, that sentence could, we could parse that sentence, even though it's not that many elements for like 10 minutes, because it's Jason Kidd interviewing for a, a potentially very important head coaching job. But the part that I want to focus on for a brief moment is that he interviewed for the Lakers head coaching job with Rob Palenka and Kurt Rambis. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's more disturbing that it seems like Rambis is now the number two guy. And of course, Linda Rambis is very high up on the business side with the Lakers, because I still, I don't think the kids gonna get the job unless Lou turns it down but we'll see maybe like they'll actually do an interview process that's a little bit more expansive and we know that LeBron seems to think highly of Kidd having been the Olympic team with him in 2008 and he had a congratulatory tweet about how awesome it was when a kid got hired I can't remember whether that was in Brooklyn or in Milwaukee probably Brooklyn I'm guessing we've talked many a time he was last in our coach rankings that we did the very time <laughs> the very moment he was getting fired basically uh, last season so none of that is good i mean i i still my hope at this point out of the people that they've interviewed is that they end up with lou just because i think he he brings two clear skills that neither of the others do which is a clear focus on spacing and offense and just running everything around around lebron and number two a good history of dealing with lebron and getting him to perform at least to some degree it's not like he got him to defend those last couple of years um then troubling news with king's head coach luke walton about a week after he is hired a sexual assault civil suit has been filed against him by kelly Tennant, a former colleague of his with spectrum Sportsnet in la where walton worked in the 13-14 season as a g-league coach and part-time analyst the alleged assault occurred in 2014 it would have had to have been either in november or december because the allegation are allegations are that it occurred in walton's hotel room when he was there as a member of the warriors coaching staff that season and they only played two games in LA one was November one was December no criminal charges apparently are imminent nor is there a criminal investigation going on at the time interesting to note that the California legislature recently changed the statute of limitations for civil sexual assault from two years which had it been under the old rules the suit couldn't have been filed to 10 years and so that change in the law actually enabled this suit to be filed there may be other causes of action I haven't seen the the complaint but for that particular cause of action uh the suit could not have been actually been filed before that change in the law and certainly there's absolutely nowhere near enough information out right now to make a evaluation as to the truth or not of these allegations however precedent would seem to indicate that there's unlikely to be league discipline on walton before any sort of adjudication is reached at a minimum if you look at derrick rose who also was uh sued for civil sexual assault the league did not really react and then uh, when he was found not liable uh, there was uh, no league discipline so that would it wouldn't seem like anything in particular is coming unless the league's investigation uncovers something that has not yet been made public the kings appear to be continuing with business as usual they continued to look at assistance maybe they're going to bring in jeff hornacek as a lead assistant Uh, vlade and walton met with him on tuesday there's also another interview that took place uh, on tuesday as well those interviews were scheduled before the allegations surfaced so it looks like uh, this is going to kind of be in a holding pattern as far as any sort of discipline or on the court effects uh, until this case goes to trial and that's uh gonna be a year away if not much more than that yeah so clearly disturbing disturbing news and we will you know we're not investigative reporting on this so we will we will address it when we when new reporting comes out but 
that's all we can really do. Yeah, and frankly, I'm I'm not a legal analyst, and I, neither I nor anyone else at this point is qualified to opine on the truth of these allegations let's do a quick read here and then we can talk about free agency we get in a nice little break here so we can set the scene as we get into uh looking at some of these teams off season by which free agents are available we're gonna start with the point guards and shooting guards right after this from zebit zebit believes that everyone deserves access to lifelong interest-free credit what it is is a marketplace that provides a zero interest credit option for all members not tied to your credit score doesn't impact your credit score no cost to join no membership fees no late fees zebit has more than fifty thousand products in their marketplace brand names like xbox sony apple gopro fitbit all at competitive prices they've got electronics barbecues furniture if you're in a situation where traditional credit options don't work for you and you have purchases that you need to make zebit is a great option to look at they have a five-star rating on trustpilot and they've earned the trust of hundreds of thousands of customers who shop on zebit with zebit you have the power to buy what you need and pay over time interest free sign up for them today at zebit zebit.com slash cap space easier slash cap space as we talk about all the time here on the program they'll get you 2500 bucks in credit at the zebit marketplace at zero interest and zero cost to join once again they will give you 2500 dollars in credit to shop the zebit marketplace that's zebit zebit.com slash cap space once again zebit.com slash cap space use that slash cap space url and let them know that you came from us so denny this is looking to me like one of the more fascinating free agent markets that we've seen last year it was very clear nobody had any money the top guys were going to get paid and then we're going to see a lot of one-year deals we're going to see a lot of below market deals this year the money isn't obviously as ridiculous as it was in 2016 when 27 out of the 30 teams ended up using cap space and so many teams had max space if not more than that with the the cap jumping up so much this year just to set the scene a little bit the teams that have max space or conceivably could have it and to reiterate what those maxes are projected to be this again is good for context as we talk about some of the contracts some of these guys could get for players with zero to six years of experience we're looking at a projected 27.3 million dollars on that 109 million dollar cap estimate players with seven to nine years of experience we're looking at a maximum of 32.7 million and then players with 10 plus years of experience that your kevin Durant or players who would be eligible for designated veteran which is no free agents actually so uh designated veteran contracts wouldn't start until next year to the extent that they're eligible or even two years down the road and that's based on what the cap is then so basically the only players who are going to be getting this much as free agents this summer well there is an ex- there, there is a potential exception for guys that can qualify this year like clay thompson and kemba walker oh yes that's true i forgot sorry i i completely blanked on those guys i'm uh gotta shift back into uh free agents mode here been so locked in on the playoffs yeah so that, that was a really stupid thing to say yeah um well so i want to give an, a number for but, context but that's as 30, well but that's 38 million would be right for, for those guys so so a number that i like to have out there i've written about this for sporting news and now for the athletic is the the collective amount of space around the league i haven't done a new estimate since february right around the trade deadline but i had it at 540 million in total spending power around the league that understates it a little bit because i'm generally cautious with full bird rights like that's yeah. more just 
just like the money they can spend on new additions rather than retentions. But that kind of gives you an idea that's significantly less than 2016, but also significantly more than than 2018, which was such a tepid market. Yeah, I've I've got it at around 431 million. I think we were like you know 220 or something like that for last year. Uh, and take you through the teams that could have max space, basically more than that 27.2 million. And this is a, our projection, and there are a lot of nuances to it as we go through the individual teams. This can change. Atlanta Hawks 41 million, Brooklyn 28 million with D'Angelo Russell's cap hold on the books, Dallas 30 million assuming that Dwight Powell opts in and they hold on to Kristaps Porzingis cap hold which is 17 million Indiana much depends obviously on whether they keep Corey Joseph and Thad Young and Bogdanovich if they only keep Bogdanovich who seems the most likely guy that they would want to keep uh 31 million for them the Clippers 55 million they would probably have to do something with Danilo Gallinari to create enough space for two max slots there the Lakers 35 million again they can probably just barely eke out enough for a 10 plus max guy if they needed to the knicks 70 million sacramento 37 million without the cap hold of willie cauley stein so those are your teams utah could also get to max space but i'm assuming that they're going to hold on to Derek favors with that if they move on from him they could get to max space as well so that is eight teams that i project right now to have max space which is pretty close to where we were i think in 2017 maybe a little bit below 2017 but the real complicating factor here half the league are going to be free agent because of all the one-year deals that were signed a year ago and so while i think at the top end this market will be pretty similar to what we saw in 2017 maybe a little bit below that at the bottom end there's just going to be like a straight cutoff point where the music stops and there just are half as many chairs as there are free agents and guys are going to have to again go into the one-year prove-it deals and then hope that there's even more space available uh, in 2020 which there probably will be all those sour 16 coming off the book those four-year deals but we could see also teams be very aggressive in stretching players because they know that everybody's got space in 2020 and the free agent crop isn't as good in 2020 and so it makes more sense in some teams minds that okay we'll just spread this guy over three years that's a bad contract that ends next year and it's better to take that long-term hit to get more spending power now but again as we saw in 2016 when teams when everybody decides oh yeah the cap's going up let's spend our money now then that can lead to a situation where the market gets really inflated you know that there's some advantage to kind of zigging when everyone else sags unless you're getting one of the absolute top guys so uh, anything else to add on on that there one other quick thing this offseason more so than any other that i can remember the collective spending will be affected by whether the top end players choose to come back or not because so many of these elite players including some that we will talk about on on this part of the free agency preview have the choice between a team that does not have spending power outside of bird rights and another team so let's say Kawhi Leonard stays with Toronto well then that's a max slot that can go to somebody else if Kawhi Leonard goes to another team with cap space then not only does that team lose that max slot but Toronto does not gain one so we could see some really big swings and so I mean you have kind of two different sets of musical chairs you have one that's the max players and just how many max slots are available and all that but then you have the second tier of just how much is available for all of these teams and where do some of these franchises and front offices draw the line between 
spending long term and spending short term. The Clippers are a great example of this. You know, like the Clippers, you could, and it's not a clear cut case. Like, okay, once you get past, I don't know, Chris Middleton, okay, then everybody else you're, you're offering one year deals and trying for 2020. It gets a lot more complicated, partially because the 2020 free agent class is so bad that even if it's an, it, like not your favorite fit or your favorite player, having them not only for this year, but having them under contract and everything else might be better than waiting. Yeah. And that's why this is such a, a seminal summary. And that's a great point that if you're an agent for a mid-level guy, maybe just below the, the Middleton type of level, you're really hoping Kawhi goes back. You're really hoping KD goes back and you want the Clippers and the Knicks, the teams with the two highest amount of, highest amounts of space. You want those teams to not get their superstar. You know, Kyrie in Boston is another one as well. Middleton in Milwaukee, the Philly guys, although Philly would have some space if you know, Harris and Butler were to leave. So you're really hoping that those guys stay home and obviously the Knicks and Clippers are the big ones and then you know I mean this is a seminal moment for those teams too I mean if those they don't get anyone and then you know the Clippers have been praised and praised and praised but and they've rebuilt their team on the fly but then what do they do they just bring everyone back and they have another 45 win team and they're kind of just locked into there and they just hope that Shea Gilgis Alexander develops into a superstar they're losing their pick this year as as well you know same thing with the Knicks I mean the Knicks uh, are gonna have a, a high draft pick which helps but I mean their team was awful this year you know if they are they going to just try and get better with 70 million in space so they roll that over but then there's nobody in 2020 it's really you're either going to get someone this year or you're going to have a couple of years of mediocrity uh, for the Knicks and Clippers at a minimum but yeah all right we're, we're getting a little too team specific here so let's talk about the point guard market first and the way I like to break this down is superstar star starter rotation and fringe and those are pretty self-explanatory and I'm and I'm also just very strict on those when I think of say starter I think of that as a guy who we're going to give pretty big money to or we're going to give a long-term contract to where we say all right we signed this guy and at least for the next two or three years maybe even four years we've got this locked up there we're going to fudge a little bit and then obviously as you get into rotation it's hard to get the rankings too high or, or I'm sorry not too high but too specific on some of these guys especially because teams have different needs and different type of players etc so the one superstar available at the point guard position at least in my opinion is Kyrie Irving age 2070 as a player option which he will certainly decline unless he suffers a catastrophic injury during these playoffs plenty of suitors going to be available for him he is not eligible because he was traded for a designated veteran contract so the biggest that he could get is five years 189 million from the Celtics or four years 146.5 million from another team to me giving Kyrie just a a shorter point guard his injury history I think that fifth year but actually matter especially if you can get it as a player option and only the Celtics can offer that there's even been speculation that perhaps all of this oh I could go somewhere else posturing is to make sure that he gets that full boat deal from the Celtics we'll see of course how their season ends we'll know that uh, pretty soon I classify Kemba Walker uh, as more of a star that is based he clearly will have a max contract available should he want it but at age 29 shorter performance declined over the second half of the season very dependent on hitting the jump shot the pull-up three-pointer at this time not that great on defense and very reliant on quickness as well so to me i think whatever contract he signs will be a bad contract especially if he <laughs> i mean 
mean, he could, of course, make the designated veteran criteria. Then he would be eligible for a five-year deal worth $221.3 million that would pay him $50 million in his age 33 season. I don't see that being a great idea, but you never know uh, with Charlotte. The indications are, suppose there's a report that after he found out that they couldn't trade for Marcus he became disillusioned. And of course, they didn't make the playoffs. And then he's looking to leave Charlotte. Hasn't made that much money in his career, though. Only $48 million so far. But that, that's really interesting to me. It seems like for Kyrie, the other suitors are the Knicks. And, and there's also a report that he might meet with the Lakers. It does seem like, by the way, Danny, as a quick aside, when these guys like actually do meetings, it doesn't seem like they come back. Usually if they're coming back, they there do like the, this, the Paul George type thing? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there isn't this, oh, we're going to wait until July 5th to decide and we're going to have these public meetings and people are going to report on, oh, Jerry West has just left the left the high-end place that they've rented for the July 4th weekend. You know, we don't have that kind of crazy stuff going on. Well, I, I want to push the timeline a little bit ahead of that for Kyrie specifically. I, I, yeah. I, I wrote about this a little bit before and Kyrie has greater ripple effects. I, I think he's the kingmaker in this entire offseason, just not being the best free agent. And the reason why is because Kyrie's, what he tells the Boston Celtics could and should affect their offer for Anthony Davis. And I've said for a long time that I think the most, the best window for an Anthony Davis trade should one happen this offseason is before or at the draft, because then the Pelicans, assuming that there are draft assets that go in that deal, they can pick the players they want. They're going to have a high pick of their own, but that will be an opportunity. Not only do you avoid the car driving off the lot problem, but also the uncertainty of a future draft asset. You never know if a team is going to have a Sacramento-esque improvement and dramatically weaken the quality of a, of a future asset. Whereas if it's the seventh pick in the draft, you know what that is. You know who those players are. So they've already scouted them. So what? So there are two parts. This. One is what Kyrie tells Boston should affect their offer because that affects what team they're building. You know, if and if and that could go as extreme as if Kyrie says, "I'm staying if you get Anthony Davis." Well, then effectively you're trading for both of those guys. And Kyrie has no obligation to tell Boston anything. He doesn't have to tell Danny Ainge anything, but it does lead to a better outcome for him in most of these scenarios to be honest with them. Yeah, and perhaps he he won't really know what he's doing. I mean, you never know. Maybe there's some people who are like that and don't actually make their decision. Many are skeptical of that. However, um other destinations for Kyrie we mentioned the the Knicks and Lakers don't really see anyone else as being in that mix realistically for him one other point I want to make and this is I think a good clarifying difference between Kyrie and Kemba Kyrie Irving is good enough that depending on what the other free agents say even a team that isn't necessarily point guard needy might move things around if Kyrie says he wants to go there whereas with Kemba Walker I think that there are certain teams that especially given the price point and his age and everything else like that I I don't think you're moving heaven and earth if you already have somebody that you want and so that's i think why Kyrie's a superstar and kemba's a star yeah and i think Kyrie, if it weren't for injury odds are that the contract you give him probably ends up being a decent value if he does get injured then you know there's a lot of risk there whereas kemba i think if he gets a max contract even next year i don't think he's going to live up to that but you know what else are you spending your money on and and but it does make more sense to get him if it puts him over the top so we've been asked this before of what some of our favorite walker destinations are uh of the teams that have max space obviously i'm sure 
Charlotte will make an offer. We'll see how much that is. The Knicks have been discussed if Kyrie doesn't go there. There have been some reports that Kemba doesn't want to go back home and deal with being in New York. Utah, to me, makes a ton of sense for him. Although, you know, it doesn't, with Gobert and Mitchell kind of locked up, they might try and go after Mike Conley first or re-sign Rubio. I mean, there's not, it is a thin point guard market at the starter type of level, as we'll get to, although there are other options who I think could help Utah. Indiana certainly would be an option for him as well. And if Oladipo comes back, you know, they could be a formidable top four, top five team in the East, especially depending on what happens with all the uncertainty with those other guys. I guess you could say the Clippers, but I, it doesn't seem like they would be too interested in him. You know, they've got Shea, they could bring back Beverly and just, they also seem kind of too smart to short circuit the rebuild by spending money on what's going to be a bad contract for him. And then of course the Lakers might be another one too, if they can't get anyone else. I think they would probably end up focusing more likely on like a Jimmy Butler or something like that though. But we'll see. And I think Walker he might be a guy where you know if if kd is going to take a bunch of time to make his decision if uh, although he did that last time i think he's going to eschew the theater of it this time and and just make his decisions kind of the the way lebron did where he's going to just you know make it faster and try to avoid as much fanfare um but who knows with kd Kyrie seems like the type who's going to take plenty of time and take meetings and slow everything down and really you know walker is just going to have to kind of wait and see what happens with Kyrie. i think you you know unless he's just going to go back to charlotte and they overwhelm him with the offer regardless uh, but I, I think it's it's gonna be i predict it's gonna be kind of a slow free agency period this year which of course is terrifying for us but uh because of all those factors you said and the domino effect let's talk a little bit about the the rest of the guys here i only have two guys characterized as starters and i think that's probably actually generous to be honest you know i don't wouldn't expect either of these guys to get kind of what we traditionally think of as starter money which would be three four years over 15 million dollars a year but Ricky Rubio and Patrick Beverly are the guys here I think what separates them from the guys below them that I have as rotation are is just that they have two-way ability to some degree Rubio people would say oh he can't shoot but yeah he can handle the ball he's a great passer uh, and is a, a solid defensive player though I think he's not as good as he used to be there as he's gotten older he, Rubio is age 28 Patrick Beverly is age 30 and Beverly I will make an exception of thinking of him as a starter in terms of the amount of money that he's going to get but he's a guy with two-way ability he's also 30 as an injury history but the fact that he stayed healthy all year i think is a a big point in his favor coming off of that uh, meniscus repair that he had last year and you know he shoots the three at close to 40 percent can run a little bit of pick and roll and uh, plays defense on the other end and so because he's not like incredibly dynamic but because he fits in so many places next to ball dominant superstars that's why i had him classified as a star because i think there will be demand for his services because they'll just yeah no he's not that valuable to one individual team but there's also be a lot of teams that want him if kevin durant has more lebron james in him than i expect he could just try to get him on the knicks if kevin durant leaves you know that's sort of a circumstance of get the guy that frustrated you in a recent series but beverly so i think what his problem is going to be in terms of market is that there are a lot of teams that are interested in him however most of those teams will not have much in the way of spending power the clippers are a great example here like yeah there's a possibility that they could even use bird rights to keep him but my 
my expectation is they're going to try to squeeze every little last drop out of their cap space. And then at that point, all they'll have, because they would have to renounce Beverly and so many other guys, they would all they would have is the room mid-level. And I don't think that's enough for Beverly unless he wants to take it. And yeah. it is his prerogative. He can do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. But I mean, I'm thinking something between like, you know, low 20s to 30 million guaranteed would be something that, that would be reasonable for Beverly. But again, you know, the sort of teams that need him, they're going to be dealing with the mid-level exception or the taxpayer mid-level or even the room exception. Right. Yeah. So that's a big challenge. Do you want to do all the unrestricted before we get into the restricted guys? Because there's some restricted that I would have in this cal- in this category as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I think uh, let's do the unrestricted guys first, because okay. as we've talked about before, it's really just a different market for restricted free agents because you just you got to wait eight days at the start of free agency to know whether you got the guy or not. And that's just, you know, it's really going to be bad teams that can deal with having their offer matched and having cap space just kind of sitting there towards the end. And it's not the end of the world. Whereas if you're a good team, and sorry, I know we've said this before, but if you're a good team, you can't really wait on a, another team's restricted free agent because you can't just have a bunch of space that you're not using. You got to be good. You got to use that on somebody and, and know whether they're accepting it or not right away. So Goran Dragic has a player option for 19.2 million. I would be shocked if he doesn't just pick that up and take himself off this list. So the best guy I have is kind of a rotation guy is 27 year old Corey Joseph, just because he's a little bit younger than some of these guys. Certainly a limited shooter, limited finisher at the rim, but he at least can get some penetration and kind of gnash gnash under the rim and, and run your second unit and just sort sort of keep it going. He's not dynamic enough to really be a lead guard. We saw that once again in the playoffs. His shooting slump down the end of the year was not great either. But at 27, excellent defensive player can, can guard some twos who like to play off the ball as well and come off the screens. So I think he's probably the guy I would look at as the top of the backup point guard market as and as a guy who has a lot of experience as well playing in two guard alignments despite his limited shooting ability i would have him there too one point of clarification for how i draw these lines for me a rotation level of player at any position is somebody who you sign with the intention of giving them regular minutes like that to me is the line between rotation and fringe so you sign player x like tj mcconnell is probably a good example he's in this tier for me those type of players that's what you do whereas a fringe guy maybe you know and this is the average team like they're they're eye of the beholder of players all over this free agent class but those are players who you might be signing probably more likely for the minimum and saying hey if you earn it you can get a regular rotation spot but also usually and fringe and rotation guys the difference between rotation and fringes i would be very surprised if they did not make an nba roster you know like those are guys who yeah that's the assumption where some fringe guys probably will not another guy who uh, and, and there's also a little bit of a difference here between some guys who are like spark plug off the bench type of guys that scores uh and true point guards that you think of to run your second unit george hill who has a substantial non-guarantee he's due about 20 million for next year only 1 million of that is guaranteed that contract that he signed with the kings in the summer of, of 2017 almost no way he's back in milwaukee at that number they will waive him he's not going to get claimed at that number but he has actually looked extremely spry since malcolm brogdon went down and he's gonna be 33 and suffers with injury issues and stuff so that's another thing that you talk about here too for a guy's market as a backup point guard is well you need a reliable option at that position and george hill could be a lot better than a lot of these guys but he's also going to play 55 games and so when that's the case and now your second unit i mean for example like detroit look at their record with ish smith who's usually pretty reliable out of the lineup this year and they had to go down to jose calderon right like backup point guard oddly enough is one of those positions where you really can't afford an injury 
because it can just torpedo your entire offense on the second unit and then you're just done you know if you got to go to a jose calderon type or something so now uh, nba teams usually seem to be more rosy about guys injury histories than i am and so that may not hurt his market that much but i I think hill could be looking at kind of a two-year deal eight million a year type of thing you know if he continues to play well especially in these playoffs uh another guy darren collison never gets hurt really i think he's moving into another phase of his career good signing but 31 now uh, making 10 million in indiana i expect him to get less than that even though he was starting there he is pretty limited uh so he's another option there i but i think of him as more of a backup you could see a team signing him as a stopgap starter this is you know kind of ideal you know you could see a team signing Corey joseph as a stopgap starter as well so i'm not saying these guys wouldn't be signed as starters necessarily especially depending on what happens in the restricted market supply can dictate a lot of that you know what what teams have and and what is available to them but yeah uh, and to me i draw a line between collison hill rose and those guys and the rest of the group where to me there isn't really an argument that they're even a spot starter they're more just straight backups so i think we could go through those a little more briskly and if there's somebody that you want to talk about longer we can march triple double monster alfred payton he i I would say he had a pretty solid year overall this year with new orleans you know i mean like the advanced numbers were terrible i pretty saw i'd be great that's that also might be informed by me being super low on alfred payton for his entire career yeah i mean relative to expectations but but i mean to me i'm not sure i'm happy with him if he's my backup point guard it's a fair point Uh, you know i mean and but again he's a little bit more dynamic but just the lack of shooting defensive tools but you know no defensive results uh it's uh again this is a situation where reliability for a lot of teams is really going to be prized and you know i'm not sure that that's him necessarily i mean he keeps getting chances he has a lot of physical talent he does put up traditional numbers there are people who value that but i'm uh color me skeptical of him as like oh we solved our backup point guard problem we signed alfred payton yeah i think the only guy in this part of it where i would feel more comfortable in that is ishmith i just like ishmith i I like his game quite a bit yeah and no i should actually have him higher yeah and and i've been concerned i mean jeremy lynn hasn't looked good as a member of the raptors he's been dealing with injuries and and other things but what he wants you know with a lot of these guys that will also be a question is would they take less money to be on a competitive team we've seen we saw raymond felton do that for a couple years in a row in oklahoma city or do they want maybe a little bit more money a little bit more responsibility maybe they have a higher chance of starting as an injury replacement or something else and so this group has some some real choices to make it but i think the most the most fascinating of this group is tj mcconnell though because mcconnell this will be his second nba contract but he's 27 same age as Corey joseph two years older than alfred payton and low capled with the sixers so that might make you think that he's come back but he is such a strange and strained fit yeah. with where this team ended up and he's unrestricted because they picked up that fourth year team option on him so he so mcconnell can do whatever he wants and he doesn't have to wait on philadelphia if he doesn't want to and he doesn't even know if that offer is going to be coming from them yeah mcconnell not really a playoff player with some of his limitations really on both ends but he does play hard the lack of improvement in his jump shot and you said he's already 27 is pretty concerning he's not even willing to take like a wide open corner three at this point does have the mid-ranger he will distribute it looked good by some of the advanced numbers at at times in his career but you know there's a report that they could get a first rounder for him which to me if that was actually true i was like why the hell didn't you do that because he's not even playing in the playoffs and he can't play in the playoffs 
um but i think he could make just a normal team a pretty decent backup point guard again i mean the difference between being say you know an orlando type of playoff team and what you really need to be to be like a philly winning win in the second round so many of these guys we look at it's like no that guy that guy's gonna be a liability if you get to the second round of the playoffs uh but he gives them minutes in the regular season and there's certainly a lot of bad players that kill teams you know i mean having tj mcconnell instead of jerry and grant for example to use the magic again it makes a huge difference um yeah so so he's an interesting one rajon rondo another one at age 33 put up the stats again advanced numbers awful again one of the worst defensive players at his position did shoot the spot up three better but still doesn't get guarded not a good finisher at the rim either you got to run everything through him he turns it over a lot you know i i think of him as just an okay backup point guard at this point in time not someone i'm interested in as a playoff guy you know i think he got a lot of shine with new orleans last year but i didn't think that he had that much to do with their success frankly and they just had a very thin rotation and they used him and he got a lot of assists but you know i thought he was a major reliability against the warriors and then obviously i think any laker fan this year even with some of the more rose tinted glasses that they can wear at times would tell you that he was just atrocious defensively this year so i, I think of him as a, a mid-end kind of backup guy uh, again a couple others too that i have in this category but maybe should be closer to fringe devin harris age 36 jj Barea coming off the torn achilles at 35 certainly before that was a, a solid enough option for a, a lot of teams but the torn achilles at 35 you know that's not a that's not a great sign for what he's going to be going forward and uh derrick rose the other guy that we didn't mention i would be surprised if he's not back in minnesota that's just kind of how i feel about it with the, the renaissance that he's had there and they also have kind of other options where if he gets hurt you know it's not the end of the world anybody else who sticks out to you as being interesting i mean i guess isaiah thomas is it we have down in the fringe level i mean it's he, he he might not even be in the league next year i mean maybe someone will give him a chance because he's coming off the surgery so but at 30 and everything i've seen of him he just can't explode at all uh hard to see really you know how he even makes it back in as like a quality backup at this point unless he takes major steps forward the guy i want to single out is michael carter williams he looked much better physically during this Agreed. run this run on the orlando magic and that matters a lot for him i mean think about the the impact his athleticism length and effort had in that rookie of the year season back with the sixers and we've largely seen that sap from him since then it's an underrated part i mean the league has also moved meaningfully against his skill set but if he can be a, a, a more creative player especially if you could pair him I, I, you talked about this with Patrick Beverly and obviously Michael Carter Williams is steps and steps below Beverly but the idea the increase in ball dominant capable creators that are larger than point guard size I think opens up some opportunities on second units for Michael Carter Williams so he yeah I mean, it was a strange year for him because he, he had a just a rough run of it with one of those guys in Houston but I think there's somebody in there so he, he might get that but again he's on the low end because there is not certainty there it's a possibility yeah. it's a it's an intriguing possibility but point guard as you said like the absence of reliable point guard play can can absolutely sink a team. We saw it with Brooklyn a few years ago, or Orlando's second unit until Briscoe really stepped up and placed a Jaron Grant. Like it happens all over the league. And so are you willing to say he is our only guy at a number two? I, I'm not there right now. And I like I like a lot of what Carter Williams showed. Yeah, among non-guaranteed guys, I think most of these guys, their teams are going to keep them like Neto, Shaz Napier, Frank Jackson, Frank Mason, maybe you could see him, them moving on from him. Uh, Tony Parker has like a 
a $5 million non-guarantee for next year. Maybe if Walker isn't back, they just decide to let him out of that and let him go to a, another contender. Parker struggled with injuries down the end of the year, but gave him competent backup point guard play throughout most of the season. But he's 37 now too. So I, I think $5 million for him might be a little bit steep. Well, also, it's a, I think also it's, an early yeah. guarantee date, uh, July 4th. That could be a problem. Yeah. They might not know with Kemba at that point. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's true. And also maybe if they move on from Batum in some fashion, like I think part of why Parker went there was to play with his buddy. And uh, Yogi Ferrell, another one, do about $3 million non-guaranteed. It didn't seem, at least like Dave Yeager was that happy with him. I, I think he's just fine as a backup point guard for a team like the Kings. So I, I would probably keep him at that number, but we'll see whether they do or not. All right, let's talk about the restricted guys here. This is really interesting to me. No, well, <laughs> no superstars. In my opinion, no stars. I have D'Angelo Russell as just a starter level of player at age 23. Right now, I think we saw in that Philly series some of the limitations that he has. And I've also got Malcolm Brogdon and Terry Rozier there. I actually have Brogdon ranked above Russell. Also, though, you know what? I'm actually, forget it. Let's, I'm moving Brogdon to shooting guard. That's, uh, I, I meant to do that and then I, I forgot. So let's, we'll save Brogdon for then. Um, so it's just Russell and Rozier. Russell, of course, quite fascinating. And I thought it was interesting talking about his market. You know, Mike Scotto wrote this piece, which was kind of like, ah, eh, you know, a little bit of an agent favor type of piece talking about, oh, he could have this market and even trying to put it in as favorable light as he could while still being realistic he couldn't really come up with a great potential destination for him. I mean he talked about like Phoenix and Orlando but those teams don't really have space to give him a, a lucrative offer so I'm not sure where he ends up you know as a team that has space that really needs someone at that position and can afford to wait on uh finding out about him so it does seem like that's one where he's not going to have that external type of leverage a lot of times in circumstances like D'Angelo Russell especially when it's a player who I like less than it seems like the collective does. My uh, my assumption goes to the idea of while even I don't think there's a destination that that they will find one. Or in this specific circumstance, while I would disagree with this, Brooklyn might just say, "Hey, you know, this guy made an All Star team. We we can come to some sort of an agreement in the early part instead of forcing him to get an offer." The, some of that also depends on Sean Marks's willingness, what he prefers between a three plus one, meaning a three year deal with a fourth year player option, which would be a structure of an offer sheet, or a straight five year deal. Like it's possible that just the possibility that D'Angelo Russell isn't isn't this good makes that fifth year a lot less desirable for Brooklyn than for Russell. The easy counter to that is he's only 23 years old, so you could expect that his best years are ahead of him. So it, it's, a, it's a real challenge, and Brooklyn, in my eyes, should be more open to the possibility, just it depends on whether you're a free agent optimist with them, that they could spend that money better than D'Angelo Russell, especially because of their supply at shot-creating guards, like they have Karis LeVert and and Spencer Dinwiddie under team control for longer, and there's a benefit there. However, that is not how I expect Brooklyn to proceed this summer. Yeah, my feeling on where it ends up, and this is without having done the mock off season either, I think it ends up somewhere between 80 to 100 million guaranteed over four years. I think that's kind of where it ends up. And you know, maybe it's closer to 80 million, and then there's incentives that could push it closer to 100. I think it could go that kind of a direction where once you get over 20 million, you can feel like you're getting paid a ton 
run but yet you know there there really is not the leverage to push it to the max as far as i'm concerned and you know worth noting too that brooklyn i mean it seemed like early in the year when he was struggling you know it wasn't that he wasn't even necessarily going to be in their plans and they already have dinwiddie under contract as well who i happen to think is better than russell and i think could could step in they've got lavert as well so like those three guys it's tough to play all three of them together you're just too small on the perimeter if you're really trying to take the next step as a team but there's such a feel-good atmosphere around the nets they actually started to sell out games again it was a good atmosphere during the playoffs they got some attention with this feisty series against philly although it you know ended up not really being particularly close at all but again i just don't see where the leverage is coming from and so it's really to me going to be up to the nets largesse and just wanting to avoid alienating a guy who has a lot of confidence and doesn't seem like you would take kindly to really being squeezed so i do think the nets will come with you know a quote-unquote fair offer you know i don't see them doing what the rockets did on capella last year necessarily um russell also has an injury history as well which is worth noting so i think you know he, he's in theory would want to take it the other int- interesting issue is his cap hold around 21 million dollars it could be possible for the nets that if they were to agree on a contract around the 20 million 21 million per year range that they could sign that contract give them a little more space you know started at 18 or 19 give them the eight percent raises get kind of right around there but give themselves a little bit of extra room in this free agent market that might be another thing that affects things as well terry rozier age 25 star has fallen this year to be sure celtics have not played great with him on the floor as a backup looked like a dead bang future star but still a guy that i like because he can defend and he can hit open shots and can get out in transition and he's athletic so i think he's a relatively easy player to fit around the suns have been rumored to be very interested in him for a while much of course depends for him on what happens with Kyrie as well what happens with Al Horford too I mean another guy we just nobody is talking about his potential free agency right now uh but you know really tough to say his market I mean if you're just gonna say in a vacuum what type of player is he you know what what would let's say you just wanted to pay him a contract as an unrestricted free agent what would your offer be I kind of see him as a lower end starter right I don't see him as a starter right now I see him as a capable backup who could I mean so many I mean 25 you kind of predict he's going to grow into it a little but to me the biggest weakness with Terry Rozier is running an offense and yeah yeah you got to have a playmaker next to him yeah that's that's a lot to ask like and he's a great rebounder he's a capable defender at his position I like all of those things but for me and that's I think it's part of the reason I'm a little bit lower on Patrick Beverly than you are as well like you're you have to have that other piece already in place you can't plan on that in the future and so that really narrows the supply of teams now Phoenix is is a fascinating one because of what we saw Devin Booker do with the ball in his hands this year but you know for example like Orlando like I don't particularly like Terry Rozier and Orlando because they haven't figured out the other guy yet and so for me Rozier I would have him more in the you know capable backup range so something more like nine to ten million a year the amount of years would be flexible if at that low of a price I would be more comfortable with going the duration he was he was happy with you know if he wants more money then I would want shorter to, to mitigate the risk a little bit but at that sort of price if he wants to go longer that's fine but that's and I'm guessing that's lower than you for you know reasons we've sweat um yeah and but i do think that that kind of player if you do have your james harden your devin booker type of player that kind of player is hard to find i mean we just went through the unrestricted free agents and who are really those two-way guys who can defend the point guard position well and shoot threes and at least you know be a semi-competent secondary ball handler there aren't that many of those guys you know so i do think his skill set is pretty valuable but i agree i mean you can't play him like you know he's a 
a every down pick and roll type of option delon wright he'll, he'll be really interesting in memphis as another restricted free agent you know i think of him as a rotation guy borderline starter the three-point shooting regression that he showed this year was troubling and he's also 27 so you know point guards do continue to improve for maybe a little bit later into their careers as they really begin to understand and, and can shoot the ball better but then they also fall off pretty quickly as they get into their early 30s so you really you're paying him in some ways it's a good thing because you're paying him for prime years you would think he'd be back in memphis especially if they move on from mike conley which seems to kind of be the plan right now but another guy just with the shooting limitations it's hard to see him as you know a starter quality player type of guy who's going to get some big offer sheet you know i'm kind of thinking of him as more in the seven eight million type of range and i think that would be a fair contract for him if that's where they end up at this specific group for me of rotation level restricted point guards could be the group squeezed most by the combination of restricted rules and timing because teams aren't going to be falling all all over themselves and you run into the problem here with these restricted guys of why are we going to tie up our space for a few days if an offer sheet that we think is worth making is theoretically worth matching i think that's like especially with the way washington cleared some of their flexibility or opened up flexibility by trading auto porter sataransky is in that group where can you make an offer because you don't want to do like a troll offer sheet this is not an ennis canner situation so could a team phoenix or or Orlando or whoever, could they make an offer sheet for Washington that is simultaneously strong enough for them to decline to match and also team friendly? I think that's a tough sell. I concur. I mean, Sadoransky is another really interesting one. Just better as a backup. He's got the ability size-wise to play next to another point guard. Shoots it well from three, but doesn't take enough of a volume. So still a guy who doesn't get guarded. You you can close him down pretty easily. He's also at 27. I mean, I think he's a valuable player. Does a lot of things that don't show up on the traditional stat sheet as far as his defensive intelligence. Always plays hard. Very steady guy. But you would think, especially with John Wall, going to miss perhaps all of next season and certainly most of it that Sadoransky will be a priority in Washington he is restricted so yeah hard to see another team not matching it that seems like one that could kind of go into a stalemate I mean maybe if they really don't offer him enough he could just go back to Europe but no I I see him getting kind of in the same type of a range of right you know maybe a little bit below there six seven million a year type of thing over three years that's that's where I see his range just in a vacuum again you know as you said it's really hard to know as we're doing this now well, the mock-off season will give us a much better idea of where exactly how many chairs there actually are here with all of these free agents available and, and the restricted market it's particularly the case there but you know this could just be one of those ones where especially with Sadoransky too he's going to want to play for the Czech Republic in the World Cup there's going to want to resolve his situation probably Washington will want to resolve his situation before that so I, I think this is one where despite the potential lack of outside offers that they would be able to come to it to an agreement tyus jones and emmanuel mudier as well jones is an interesting one someone that we thought maybe could be a lower end starter just really struggled shooting the ball this year he's also got problems with his size but just 23 years old i anticipate that he will bounce back as a shooter don't know if minnesota is in love with him i think a lot of that depends on what the new regime that comes in there ends up thinking of him and what happens with rose you know they don't really have any kind of a point guard of the future there there isn't really anyone too sexy that's they are going to draft in 
that range i don't think garland is going to fall to them so i mean maybe they bring him back just because we don't really have much else there you know jeff teague was hurt this year and he's got one more year under contract so just to give them some kind of an option who could grow into a long-term starter there maybe they keep him around but they and they also have tax concerns it's uh his situation is really interesting emmanuel moutier got him listed as restricted right now the knicks with their cap space aspirations would be insane to give him a qualifying offer that he would just take potentially and that qualifying offer is relatively high with the amount that he's played this year i believe that offer is yeah 5.7 million you don't want to risk him just taking that and vaporizing some of your cap space so he'll almost certainly end up as an unrestricted free agent and another guy you know he scores well doesn't really defend very reliant on hitting the mid-ranger not someone i'm looking at as oh man like we solved our backup point guard situation because we got a manual yet despite the fact that he played better this uh, anybody else who intrigues you or anything else you want to talk about here but before we wrap this up well i'm a little bit disappointed that brad wanamaker barely played for the celtics this year i think it was around 300 minutes for them some of that is because their main guys stayed healthy and so there wasn't as much of a need for wanamaker but i you know i don't i don't really have a clear feel for him players who come into the nba as older rookies wanamaker is 29 they face a really tough negotiation so we'll see what happens with him and then quinn cook another kind of tough negotiation restricted free agent with the warriors low qualifying offer because he's been making the minimum the last couple of years and he is it looks like he is out of their playoff rotation but you know a capable hand and you need regular season guys to log minutes there's also been talk even though sean livingston his role is not really a point guard, even though that's how he was drafted years and years ago. There, If Livingston actually does retire, then that creates more of a need for guard minutes. And Quinn Cook, even if he's an imperfect playoff player, is still potentially useful there. So maybe the type of guy, if, if a team really liked Quinn Cook, they could give him one of those low-end offer sheets, kind of like we saw with Ty Wallace last year, where it's not you're not taking a big step out, but you're forcing the other team to make a little bit of a move. That could happen, but I don't expect it. Yeah, Cook, to me, is an underrated player. I think he fits well on a team that again has a, a playmaker already he makes shots i don't think he's terrible defensively undersized but he competes and so he's 26 already so not a ton of room for growth but he shoots the three at, at a very good percentage he can come off a screen and and hit a mid-ranger so i i think he actually wouldn't be a horrible fit on a, on a lot of teams and it'd be interesting to see whether the warriors even give him a, a qualifying offer or not all right i guess we're really out of time here that took a long time but that point guard market is so interesting especially at the top that we had to get into it and we also did a lot uh, talking about the overall landscape which we won't need to repeat in the future but i don't think we're gonna get to the shooting guard today we got to get to oracle arena for uh, tonight's game anything to talk about uh, before we go lots and lots of off-season previews coming out i believe just on wednesday my previews for the pistons magic and thunder came out basically if a team has been eliminated recently that piece is available at the athletic or will be very very soon so you can keep an eye on those and have a new real gym radio out hopefully before the next dunk on all right and don't forget to watch the nba cast tomorrow follow me on twitter at nate duncan nba will be starting at 8 eastern 5 pacific for spurs nuggets game six that'll be a fun one and also if you're just interested catch out our reaction to that lillard game winner which uh we did live yesterday uh and also our reaction to that mason plumley hook shot as well uh which I, i've been tweeting about today talk to y'all soon